All right, welcome back to the Sand Dune podcast. Today is the eighth episode of season two, so I think we're on our twentieth episode. So we've we've achieved double double digits, and uh, I am your host Hans Cathcart, and I'm here with Frank Sigurnitsky. Hey, everybody! And you're welcome to join the conversation, Sand Dune podcast on Twitter or talk at sanddune.org if you want to send us an email. So, Frank, what have you been up to? I have been up to trying to get the family on an actual vacation. It turns out, aside from visiting the family cabin in Maine every year, we haven't been on a real proper vacation in something like 15 years. And the kid is 13, so you can all do the math. We were big fans of scuba diving, so we're forcing him to learn to breathe underwater. And I'm trying to get a bunch of 20-year-old scuba equipment in shape so that we don't die going on vacation in Florida in, in about a month. So I'm kind of filling my man cave with life support equipment right now and having fun taking everything apart and taking inventory and buying spare parts. And I don't know. It's a lot of fun planning, a, I don't know, six stops and 30 dives or some kind of craziness. Well, maybe I have to join you, but I haven't been scuba diving in 12 years now. The last time was in Australia, the Great Barrier Reef, which, yay, name dropping, fantastic places to scuba dive. But um, I don't know what all my, if my all, all my equipment would just fall apart at this point. Ours still seems to work. We had to buy our son one, so we bought him the entry level one. And it wasn't cheap. But honestly, there's a huge difference between the entry level, you know, value stuff. And when we bought stuff 20 years ago, we kind of, you know, went super deluxe. We bought the top of the line stuff. And there is a huge difference. Probably also going to kill us on baggage overweight fees. But (laughs) um, sometimes I wish we didn't have it all. So we would just, you know, take the regulator with us and maybe a wetsuit and it all fit in a carry on. But um I don't know. We'll see, you know, things, what's changed and what's not in 20 years. Nice. And oh. So I haven't, haven't been down to Key West. So I, uh, I'm looking forward to driving on that thin, tiny little bridge in a rental car that'll probably cost me a kajillion dollars. <laughs> well, good luck with that. So what have you been up to? Uh, well, I think looking at our book selection, I think I mentioned last time I was reading the Murderbot Diaries. I've finished the first five books. So that was kind of interesting uh, reading about the perspective of a, I guess you want to call it a sort of cybernetic biological being that talks about how he or it experiences the world. Uh, There's a little bit of violence in there, so that's kind of cool. Uh, But just this idea of a computer robot type being just being super fast at everything that they're doing and really making you realize that in the future, humans will be way too slow for anything having even remotely to do with uh, protection or security. And so that's been interesting. Uh, I've been getting into the Netflix series Inventing Anna, which is sort of one of those scam series that has become fairly proper, that has become fairly popular lately. And uh, then uh, I paid $5 for gas for the first time in my life. Well, that's not totally true. I've paid more, but at least here in California. Well. Today, you paid five dollars for gas. When this uh, episode dropped, gas hadn't been above four dollars yet. So, I uh, guess uh, yes. we've, just, we've, we've we've revealed a dirty little secret that I'm sure all podcasters are guilty of. In, okay, we're going to be a little bit. Well, actually, we're going to be very transparent on this episode. We're recording this episode 
significantly later than the date that we're dropping it on, which I think is the third of uh, March. But what we've been trying to do is catch up to the schedule uh, that we've been kind of getting our back to. So yes, this is happening in the future. So anything we're going to talk about uh, has already happened. Yeah, we should try to catch up soon because now we're living in this this tiny little hell where we can't do spoilers for ourselves. Um, and it's kind of a weird mind space to be in. So we will yeah. slip up every now and then. It's not that we were foretelling the future. It's simply that we, you know, got behind stuff. Right. Now, I've got two news articles to kind of talk about that I think touch a bit on some of the things we've been talking about lately with regarding to cryptocurrency and Web3. Uh, we also have a little story out of the one of the wonderful rags, the fast company about culture in terms of company culture. And let's switch on over to a news article I read. And I came across this from a crypto web three related site, uh, but the actual survey is about, uh, is actually from the National Research Group about how consumers feel about web three or web 3.0, I guess we should continue to say web three because I think that's the more appropriate thing. Uh, it's just been absorbed, it's all web three now. <laughs> that's right. And from, I didn't want to, start another episode talking about crypto. So what I want people to think about is not the crypto or blockchain or the technological solution around this particular thing, but rather what are we hearing about the report, about what are people dissatisfied about the way the current web is working? And then rather than applying a technology to the solution of that, thinking about, well, how would one solve this regardless of technology, although maybe a little bit tech, tech, but more process and how people operate. So the first thing is that it's not surprising that people, at least this report says 54% of respondents said they were worried about their rights and freedoms being threatened by technology, 44% citing that they have online privacy concerns, 38% being unhappy about online ads, Although, you know, how much can you do about that? Perhaps they're unhappy about how they're being tracked, which I think is more sensible. And 35% reporting feeling that they have a lack of control over their data. And I think in this 19 podcasts we've done so far, we've often talked about control of data and what we like to do there. So starting off with those four statistics, what do you think about those, Frank? Well, I think it shows that the, the market is ready for something new. It is ready for some kind of innovation. I mean, I think the spectacular number of entrants into the Web3 space under, I don't know, 15 different silos of technology is kind of evidence that, hey, there's a thirst out there for something. They're just not, they're not pushing something new on people who don't want it. Uh, I think the problem is how do they turn the value of their technologies to something that, that scratches that itch. And I'm not sure besides telling people, hey, it's going to be more private or it's going to be more respectful. Um, people need to feel it. And I think that's where the connection needs to come, whether you call it Web3 or not. It's whoever's going to build products that make a connection that make people trust again. That's what's going to be successful. And to be honest with you, it may not even involve 
NFTs. It may not involve crypto. It doesn't have to. I think that's the main conceit of Web3, though, is that it must have a blockchain behind it. And personally, I'm not entirely sure that's true. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Well, the good news is only 13% of those people they interviewed reported they knew what Web3 even means. And more than half hadn't even heard of the term. So it's definitely not within the global consciousness at this point. Now, the potential downsides they discuss about 33% cite concerns around cybercrime and scams, which is uh, slightly ironic. Um, but I think that is a representation of the people who have looked at some of the crypto stuff that has been happening and going like, yeah, this is definitely very scamish. Um, so I think there's that. Uh, the other bit of information out of this report was the consumers in the U.S. didn't necessarily think that regulators, such as the government, should be the only ones leading the overall change in what the web is doing today. More than half of the respondents believed that it was up to the tech companies to actually change what they were doing and that the developers and the engineers, obviously people think they have the control, uh, would actually uh, be the ones responsible for, for making things. So I think I heard you laugh there for a minute. You heard me snort, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just keep thinking of seeing the ad where it's like, you know, buy the hoodie that was designed by an Apple engineer. And it's like, what, what qualifies him as an Apple engineer for him to make a hoodie that we want to buy? And it, it's just it's this worship of engineers that they can do everything. And you're right, that like they have the ability to control the product to the end when it's not, it's the, it's the business guys who do. And I think that's part of, the, part of the kick that a lot of these technologies initially promise, which is they're supposed to be decentralized. They're supposed to be at least you know, voted on by a group. Right. It's supposed to be a group effort, an open effort. And again, that's what it is right now. However, you know, as some of these things start to materialize, some of these exchanges materialize, some of these NFT places materialize, they're turning out not to be decentralized. So there's a really interesting question here is the uh, are, are all of the theoretical selling points of these technologies actually unworkable in real business? And mm -hmm. does that actually have any implications for what we want to do? I guess the question maybe for another time, but we're in the beginning, obviously, of, or in maybe even the middle of a bubble with these technologies. And I think like we both agree, it'll shake out. Some people have great ideas and the other 90% of people go home or work for the work for the 5% who do come up with good ideas. So looking back at the dot-com era and all these tech companies that had a lot of venture capital, now we have Web3 companies getting a bunch of money, when they collapse, and a good number of them will, will they end up with anything concrete, like a bunch of people with a lot of experience in technology that'll, that will then be leverageable for some other purpose? It's possible. I think it depends on what they were doing and how much you know, green field they were trying to, to plow, so to speak. I, I often wonder... I see a lot of what looks like on the on the front end activity in this space. And actually, I should go to some of these these symposia they have and see just how much is going on. But I'm wondering what, you know, if an NFT company is going to build an exchange that's going to come online in four years to upend digital music as we know it, 
What are they actually doing today? I'm not really sure. And the amounts of money, by the way, are so much bigger than they were in the dot-com days. And not just because of, you know, good old fashioned, you know, cost of living increases. It's because everybody and their brother has a venture fund now. And the deal flow over the last year has been absolutely crazy. seems like all you have to do is stick your head out the window and money falls into it. Although I do know from reading a lot of the market rags that deal flow is starting to slow down significantly as people are like, well, what's your business model? (laughs) I guess after they invested, they asked us, but you know, they might start asking us before. So in the official report that's put out by these folks, it has a little timeline almost of, well, it's a scale of how has the internet changed over the past five years. And people generally say that it's gotten better because it's more accessible. So I think that probably means both the ability to use the internet from a mobile phone from anywhere, plus overall, I think it's gotten a little bit better for people who have accessibility issues, right? It's become more essential in people's lives, which people thought is a good thing, uh, that it's easier to navigate. So maybe the UI folks have gotten a little bit better. There's more creativity. I'm not quite sure I would necessarily agree with that, but okay. Uh, People think it's been more interesting and more fun. Now, where people think it's gotten worse, according to this report, is that it's more centralized, although I'll have a criticism of that in a second. It's more cruel. That probably has to do with how people behave online, more dangerous scams and so on, more divisive. Well, we all know how, how it's been on the internet lately, uh, that it's more addictive and more commercialized. Well, I think the commercialization comes from the fact that people need to make money. And so you're going to see more ads than at the beginning of the internet when there was a lot of venture funding going in and so on. But I want to come back around to the centralization issue because I hear a lot of the proponents of Web3 just love the idea about how, oh, let's say decentralization is better than centralization. And I think where they're kind of getting that is this loose connection to centrally planned economies like the Soviet Union versus a more freer market economy that's more distributed. And perhaps thinking, okay, well, here are some centralized players like Google or Facebook and so on. And maybe that's where the centralization comes from. But to me, I really, I don't see centralization, particularly in the technological standpoint, as really a good or a bad. I think it's just a selection of how you go about building something and then who are the market winners and losers. Do you see centralization with a different perspective, Frank, or is am I missing something about what the criticism of centralization is? Well, I think the criticism of centralization is the fairly gross supposition that um, Zuckerberg has too much power, Dorsey has too much power. You know, if one person can ban somebody from a platform that has 5 billion users, that is too much power. You know, if somebody can amass $200 million, that is too much power. Um, I think that's kind of the knee-jerk reaction to centralization. Kind of the way I look at it is centralization is a pendulum. You know, you just look at the history of computing. It always kind of pendulum kind of swung back and forth. You used to have to be entirely centralized. And then you had timeshares and things became 
And then it became decentralized with home PCs and it kept going back and forth, never finding a happy medium. So from a technical standpoint, I think, you know, that is going to go back and forth. And I think actually it's opaque centralization that's a problem. I mean, there are large portions of the internet that run on open source technology and, and nobody seems to have a particularly huge problem with it, right? Because it, although it is kind of a group that's doing it, it's not doing it in the darkness. So what I'm hearing there, I don't want to put words into your mouth here, but it's okay for things to be centralized or to have one type of technology be used by the majority of users as long as there is openness about that technology. Yeah, I think it's not the centralization of the technology, it's the centralization of the governance. It's single point of governance is the failure, I think, that these people perceive. That as you and I being you know, engineers look at a system and see there's a single point of failure that if this burns out, the whole thing comes down, right? They see centralization saying, well, if Mark Zuckerberg is the single point of censorship or, you know, Dorsey at Twitter is the single point of turning users on and off, that that is somehow a governance failure because there's no check or balance on it. So then I think, I think kind of goes along with what you were saying earlier. So you brought up the term governance, and I think it might be worthwhile to explain what that really means and then how it connects with the concepts of transparency in business and decision-making that we advocate for? Well, governance is very generically your rules. Like what, what are the rules and processes of your organization for setting the rules and processes of your organization? And that may sound a little kind of weird and corporate, but that's really what we're talking about is you know, people sitting down and deciding, here's how the company should run. And here are all the processes that it runs by. And these are intended to, hopefully in a transparent case, allow all the stakeholders to understand why a process yielded what it yielded. And that also that this process can be amended or improved or changed in some way by some mechanism that's also included in the process. And in a corporate in a corporate world, there's actually standards, you know, there are international standards and there's a lot of working groups and stuff that say, well, a company should work to this standard or to that standard. But we're talking, what a lot of, we're talking yeah. rules here, which it's rules, how you operate. Yeah, it's the rules, but not only it's the rules, but it's the process by which you arrive at the rules. So it's kind of both sides of that coin. Got it. Okay. As long so as then, they're applied consistently, right? So, Otherwise, right. it's not governance. It's just it's just anarchy. Right. So then I think going to the report in terms of what consumers want, they may be okay with a certain company having a fair bit of power and control over their particular aspect of something that they use. I mean, so people do that all the time. They choose a particular company to put their cloud documents on. And that's okay if there's a certain amount of clarity and transparency around what that company is doing. But the concern in terms of centralization is really, I think, more, is there some choice to go someplace else for a similar type of service? And I think maybe with Twitter and Facebook, people have gotten a little bit too annoyed by the fact that, that those particular companies have so much power. Being monopolies. <laughs> yeah. Yes. 
they're kind of monopolies of themselves. I mean, there's only one Facebook of Facebook, but Facebook's not TikTok and TikTok's not Twitter and Twitter's not whatever is coming next. Facebook more or less just said very recently that they're, you know, this is the first time that they haven't, you know, been growing since they started. And yeah, certainly it's been a while since they started off, but I think people considered Facebook to be this, you know, permanent thing that'll be with us forever when, you know, it's going to become unpopular and kind of go away and something else is going to take its place. I, I think the I think the centralization thing plays in to the privacy in it in, in this is how it relates back to transparency for me, kind of a, a case I've kind of picked out is it was well known that Facebook was buying um, data to try to figure out um, what things you liked and what things you didn't, you know, a certain, like your credit card transactions aren't private. So they could go find out what kind of products you liked or they wanted to spend enough money to build a psychometric profile. And honestly, that turns a lot of people off that, oh, they're rifling through all my stuff to find out what I like. And not even the stuff I put on their site, stuff that they bought in addition to the data they collect on me. Right. Right. However, However, then you get Google Pay that comes to you in your face and says, if you hook your credit card up and show us what you buy, we will literally keep track of your money real time and give you offers and rebates real time. And people see that and they're like, yeah, I'll sign up. And it's the same thing. It's literally the same thing on the back end, which is both companies are getting their hands on your credit card transaction data. But one of them did it behind your back and one of them did it in front of your back. I think that's a, it's a, it's a good illustration of the user experience and what kinds of things turn people on and what kind of things turn people off. Well, I think that is a good point to actually wrap up the show. And we'll talk about the other news article I had mentioned at the beginning of the show next time. I think if you have any thoughts on how consumers are, you as a consumer, satisfied or dissatisfied with the way the web exists today, let us know. And with that, I will wrap up, Frank. Do you think we're done? I think we're done. If anyone has a better idea, please tweet it to us. And All right. uh, everyone stay safe. And that's Sandune Podcast on Twitter or talk at sandune.org over email. See you again next week. The information provided in this podcast is not intended to constitute legal, financial, health, ontological, mixological, or spiritual advice. All content is for entertainment purposes only. Listeners should contact their attorney, financial advisor, doctor, bartender, or guru respectively to obtain advice regarding particular life matters. None of this is our fault. No individual animals were harmed in the making of this podcast although one or two entire species may have been rendered extinct. If so, our bad. Copyright 2022.